$5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code SAVE to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. So literacy is the key to everything. If you can't read a ballot or read a medicine bottle or read a story time to your child, you can't be a full participant, a full parent in society, a full citizen, a full worker. I am unwilling to give up that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out knocked out so your only choice should be go focus on what you can control 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 hi everyone and welcome to the kara golden show join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders we'll talk with founders entrepreneurs ceos and really some of the most interesting people of our time can't wait to get started let's go let's go Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I'm so excited to have my next awesome, awesome guest here. I was actually uh, recently did reintroduce to British and uh, our mutual friend, uh, Sue Nally Fleischman, and is uh, our connection. But we uh, recently were reconnected when British Robinson, who was our guest, asked me to do a book talk at her at her new newish role as the president and CEO of the Barbara Bush Foundation. And I've been so impressed, not only with British, but also with the organization as a whole. And the more research I've done on British, but also on the organization, I mean, it's just really, really incredible. Um, what you all are working on and very, very exciting. And I wanted to have British on to really talk a little bit more about her experience and overall what the Barbara Bush Foundation is doing. But as I mentioned, British Robinson is the current president and chief executive officer of the Barbara Bush Foundation for Family Literacy, which was established by the former First Lady Barbara Bush in 1989. Prior to that, Robinson was founding CEO of the Women's Heart Alliance, where she served also in State Department roles, working on incredible initiatives around HIV AIDS initiatives, as well as global women's issues. And she's just this incredible visionary leader. And I think everything you touch, British, is really for good and which I loved that on so many levels. And I, I think so many people, especially coming hopefully out of the pandemic are trying to figure out 
how can they have impact and what can they be doing? And I, I really wanted to have you on to talk not only about nonprofits, but also just about serving in many ways. And that doesn't necessarily mean in the military. That means really doing good and leading good, which I love what you were doing. So welcome, British. Thanks. Thanks. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Very excited. So I, I read that you started out in banking. Yes, it has been a journey. So one of the things that I love that you say in your book is where you've said on, on, you know, on social media is follow no path, make your own. And I think, Kara, that that really is a mantra for me, or that's been my life's mantra without knowing it or knowing it, is there hasn't been a, a straight path for me. It's truly been a journey. You know, I started out right out of undergrad in banking, um, decided it wasn't for me, uh, you know, about four years. And then I took a sabbatical, uh, took a little bit of a break and said, I felt a calling. I felt like there was something else that I was supposed to do. I didn't know what it was. No clue. You know, at 22, I'm having a midlife crisis at 22, right? I mean, what does that mean? I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm supposed to have a job. Your parents have paid for a college. What in the world is going on with you? Well, it turns out, you know, I took a little bit of time off and I looked at volunteer programs and I decided to become a Jesuit volunteer um, in the kind of early to mid nineties. And I was a social worker in Mobile, Alabama. And I had the fortune and the gift to work with some of the poorest of the poor. Um, and it taught me so much, not only about the suffering in this country, but also about myself. And from that experience, I really consider it a pivot point in my life. It gave me, I think, the direction or it allowed me to hear where I was being drawn towards and towards a life of service. Or as we say, um, as the Jesuits say, being on mission to serve others. Um, it also means that you're in the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, we would say you're ruined for life. So in those two years, I was ruined for life. I wasn't going to go back into banking or have a corporate job. I was definitely going to give back, as we say, um, to the world. And so after that experience, I went to graduate school. I was blessed to work on immigration reform and refugee policy. I actually worked in refugee camps for 10 years. I worked on social responsible investing work and then policy and advocacy work in Washington, D.C. on affordable housing issues, banking policy, U.S. foreign policy towards Africa. And from that 10-year period of having such a breadth of experience sort of practically on the ground as well as sort of theory and policy, um, I was offered an opportunity to work at a new program um, that was established at the U.S. State Department, as you were saying earlier, around HIV and AIDS, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, where I had the fortune. Ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. To be the director of all of private sector engagement, where I put together large-scale global 
public-private partnerships um, that would help us invest in people and activities around HIV and AIDS, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. And that experience made me even more committed um, and really taught me about health, public health and global health issues. And it sort of deepened my calling, as I would say, my path um, in this space. And then I also went on to t- leverage that experience to work for the health of women and girls. Um, so doing large partnerships around cervical cancer and maternal and child health um, in the Office of Global Women's Issues under Secretary Clinton. So it has been gift and grace and privilege. And then taking all of that and putting it towards global breast cancer, standing up a global breast cancer program at Susan G. Komen for the Cure. So managing 30 races around the globe, um, the races for everybody has seen, been in a pink race and the race for the cure. So I was fortunate to do that. And then to do a startup um, with Barbara Streisand and Cedar Sinai and the women's at the Women's Heart Alliance um, was incredible around women's heart disease. Very few people know, Cara, that Heart disease is the number one killer of women in this country. I had no idea before I got into the space. And so continuing to do that advocacy policy work. But I guess the punchline here, and then obviously my current role, the through line or the common thread is, to your point about service, about saving lives, I've been able to work on the most pressing needs of our time. And I would say the time means moments. And the moments found me. But I was also open and available to say yes to those moments. So they've been calling, it's been journey, it's been moments, and then taking those opportunities, taking those moments. I absolutely love that. So did your parents work in service? And I mean, where did you sort of get that bug? I mean, where? how did you, do you remember that moment when you first started thinking, this is what I want to do? Yeah, I, I mean, I really think it was from JVC, from the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. That was the spark um, that really, that really kind of put me on this path. My father was in the Air Force. Uh, my mother worked for the U.S. government uh, um, for a very long time. She was an accountant. But for me, it was. It, this might sound strange, Cara, but it was innate. It was in me, and the experience drew it out, and I continued on on the path. Um, And I think sometimes as people, as men, as women, sometimes we don't, there's this quiet voice that's speaking to us and sometimes we push it back. And for me, it's almost as if my experience in the Jesuit Volunteer Corps pushed that voice forward, that there was something I was supposed to do. Um, And so there've been, my journey, my professional journey has been more about moments of where I've been called to be in that place and to share my experience and to continue, I think, to leverage and ladder each experience on one on top of the other. I love that so much. I think that whenever I, you know, share with people the the building of hint, I mean, the first thing that I heard from consumers who had tried our our hint almost 16 years ago now, and we put an 800 number and an email on the bottle, and I started hearing from consumers thanking me. Again, I had never met them, but thanking me for helping them be able to drink water that didn't have sweeteners in it. It was the first time I heard about this disease, type 2 diabetes, which I've heard is the number one indicator for heart disease, especially in women. And uh, But the bigger thing for me 
about that story was that actually helping people is just is part of it. It's it's different than what you're talking about, but similar. And you get hooked on that. All of a sudden, you hear people saying they're relying on you, right? Which gave me so much energy. As you know, I talk about that in my book, but I can only imagine, I mean, that's what you've done in time after time. You're helping people and they're, you know, with HIV and AIDS. I mean, you were the person that they were relying on to be their advocate. And I can just only imagine how that felt, especially when things are hard, right? And stressful. It's such organic reward. Um, You know, so people may get paid a lot of money or have big salaries, but it's a reward that is so fulfilling um, that you you can't, you almost can't put words to it, um, to experience, to have had those experiences. And I have so many moments um, during that time. Wonderful memories. I love that. And then how did the Barbara Bush Foundation, uh, how did that happen? Yeah. So again, issue of our time, which I didn't know, frankly, when I interviewed, they did a national search after Mrs. Bush's passing. And again, it it found me. Um, I, I hate to say trite, but it's truth. Um, as I went through the process, um, I learned more about, because I had been in global health for, for some time, and I learned about, wait a minute, this is a problem of our time. This is an issue. Not enough folks know about it. But it also was inextricably linked to my past. So literacy is the key to everything. If you can't read a ballot or read a medicine bottle or read a story time to your child, you can't be a full participant, a full parent in society, a full citizen, a full worker. And so literacy is inextricably linked to health. So it was a full circle moment for me. I had originally started out in domestic issues, did global for 15, 20 years and find myself coming back to trying to leverage that experience um, to bring it to four Um, to raise the question around low literacy in America today. Unfortunately, there are 130 million Americans, more than half of adults essentially read below a sixth grade level today. And so if they can't, if they read below a sixth grade level, they can't participate in society. And that's a huge problem. And that means that there's a lack of opportunity. And I felt wait a minute, if I worked on opportunity for refugees and opportunity for those that had, whether it's breast cancer or cervical cancer, HIV and AIDS, how could I bring this issue into the light? And so using, thinking about that, those success experiences, how can we help drive that around awareness around low literacy in America today? Mrs. Bush said that literacy is everybody's business, period. And she was right 30 years ago. And so we really wanted to raise that. And that meant, Car, that meant disrupting things. You know, this is, your book is all about this. You had to disrupt the industry. We actually, in order to bring it to the light, because this has been a problem in our country for over 30 years, low literacy in America today. We've gotten to 130 million Americans. We're not, there's not enough time, talent, treasure, and attention on this issue. So we've got to do something pretty dramatic, pretty drastic to get people's attention. So for me, again, a calling, it found me. How can I leverage my previous experience towards this? And so for us, it really meant moving from, oh my gosh, you know, those poor people can't read. There's a lot of shame and stigma around the issue, as you can imagine. But if we don't 
look at it from moving from what I call a sympathy argument to an equity argument. If we don't say this cost us, we did a study last year with Gallup. We're losing 10% of our GDP or about $2.2 trillion in GDP due to lost earnings because people are reading below a sixth grade level because they can't get jobs, right? So they're food insecure, they're housing insecure. They have poor health outcomes. Um, So making this a bigger issue, and as you can imagine, COVID has exacerbated this and then disproportionately had an impact on minorities, people of color, women, children. So we like to say literacy is the key to everything. Um, and we have to turn that around. And we, the only way to do that is to be disruptive. So I think that's a huge part of what is driving, and I can talk more about that, but what's really driving our work as we move, move forward. Um, but I see this as a clarion call as a moment where I've been able to almost a Venn diagram, put my previous experience together um, for the benefit of, of this new calls that I'm engaged in. I, I love it. So how is it different? I mean, you're focused on the U.S., right? And and that's what the foundation is really focused on. How is that different than I than I I've always said, uh, you know, in building Hint that we've uh, we've supported a ton of in- initiatives, and there's plenty of problems in the U.S. to fix. And that's another thing that I see you doing, and I I love it. And so it's not just about not to say that we shouldn't be looking at issues outside of the U.S. as well, but I think when I see that there are things that need fixing here, I love uh, that that you, you all are doing that. How do you think from a role standpoint, what do you see are the key things that are a little bit different in that respect, international versus here? So that's a fantastic question. Believe it or not, it's harder. I got to say that again. Interesting. Believe it or why? not, why? it's harder. It's almost as if, particularly in the last decade or so, we as a society, as a globe, including us, even as U.S. donors and other big donors. So whether you're talking about the U.K. or Germany or the U.N. system, whatever it may be, we've all put such incredible attention in the last 10 to 20 years internationally. The Gates Foundation, Rockefeller. Um, and it was the right thing to do. But we've solved many problems or or almost very close to solving so many problems in an international and global context um, in many of some of the poorest countries. But it's funny because we haven't applied some of fully applied some of those lessons back to the U.S. And that was such a great opportunity and a moment for me to say, wait a minute, this is an interesting opportunity to work at the Barbara Bush Foundation for Family Literacy. How can I apply Um, my international global experience to a domestic cause and concern that's very serious, as you've heard, as you know, from the statistics. And so it's harder because one is I think we're locked into our own sort of way of doing things. We've always done it this way, or we've always done it that way. Or frankly, there's maybe not enough money on the problem. Or so there's so many issues. When you look at something like literacy, unfortunately, people say, well, it was your fault. You did something wrong. Um, you know, let's just focus on the kid. There's a lot of focusing on the child where we believe you have to look at it in a holistic fashion. You have to look at the issue through the parent and the child. It's one family unit. And we know that the mother or the parent is the child's first and best teacher. And that if that parent is low literate, 
that child is going to be low literate. Sometimes, Cara, I like to say if, if mama can't read, baby can't read. And so what we've done as a society is in some ways we've taken the cream off the crop. So we see cute little kids running around and we think, oh, we're just going to throw all this at program X or program Y. But we haven't gone upstream to say what's really gone in that, what's really going on in that household. And I think when I go back to your question, and I think internationally versus globally, in some ways, internationally, it was tabula rasa. There was no assumptions. There were no opinions. There was no this way or that way or the better way, right? We weren't fighting about how to fix it. You just had to fix it. It was evergreen. Here it's, you're fighting about public, private, charter, you know, this program, that program, state X versus state Y. Go across overseas. You just get people water. You don't worry right. about your way right. or my way. You just get them water. You need to teach a kid how to read. You just teach a kid how to read. Um, so it's it's almost as if we've overcomplicated solutions to sometimes not simple problems, but straightforward problems. And so it's easier. We also, there's a lot of money globally that we didn't see 10 years ago put into domestic causes, broadly speaking. I think with the last two years with COVID, Black Lives Matter, other issues, um, you know, our educational system, it's everything starting to kind of climate change, everything's sort of really coming to the fore, public health issues. In a sense, it's a blessing because we can all put a spotlight back on some of these core issues that don't take a lot of complication. A lot of it's just will. And we had the will oftentimes to do things internationally that I still think we need to have that collective will to do that domestically now. So interesting. Yeah, I I can totally see that because you've got, you know, amazing groups like the Gates Foundation, for example, that they don't focus on the U.S., right? And they're, you know, doing amazing things. But yeah, I, it just, uh, you really have me thinking about that. This, how do you think technology, I feel like the last year technology has definitely sped up uh, and, and changed industries. Do you, and that, and I hear in, I live in San Francisco, for example, and, you know, there's groups in, I don't live in San Francisco. I live outside of San Francisco, but I was talking to a friend about San Francisco and they have not gone back to school and they are there are communities there that don't have internet access. And so these kids are basically one year of not having any education and that's a huge problem and then the question of whether or not they could take donations to actually activate in some of these communities, the technology, the state doesn't want to take the money or the city doesn't want. Anyway, it was a fascinating conversation. How do you think technology will impact what you do? Yeah, so it's a great question. So beyond the the kind of reframe for us sort of looking at it, you know, looking at the issue as the child and the parent and the parent and the child. Beyond that, we had to say this is not working. It's a little bit of the question you ask. How do we, for 30 years, we're still fighting this. We still have 
X number, millions of people who are reading below a sixth grade level, which means they can't take care of their child. They're not in, they're not food secure. They're not housing secure. They have poor health outcomes. So we said, how do we get to them? And Kyra, one of the things I like to say is we have to meet people where they are. And that means you meet them where they live, play, pray, and work. And so that's what technology can do and can be. It can be the great equalizer versus sort of this is what you don't have. It can be a positive versus a negative. And so in order to get to millions of people, we think technology is a big bet for us. It's not really been done before. We're doubling down. We're investing in technology. About four years ago, we did a grand challenge with the XPRIZE team out in LA to find, to do an internet, a global challenge um, to ask people to develop apps for us so we could teach people to read on their cell phone. And so when you go back to my live, play, pray, work, you could be on the bus, you could be on the subway, you could have two or three jobs, right? And still perhaps learn to read or get your GED or learn how to read to your child or learn how to ask questions with the teacher and sort of challenge that and better understand, quote unquote, new math, lots of new things going on because you're juggling multiple jobs or you're dealing with childcare or whatever it might be. So technology for us is the big bet. Um, it's the golden ring that we're looking towards. So we're looking at um, traditional apps. We're looking at AI even right now. We're looking at gaming to teach because we all learn differently. So technology is a, is a big deal, that. is a big deal for us. Um, and it is disruptive. I want to go back to your book, Undaunted, and we've had to be undaunted about it. Um, traditionally, you teach adult basic education in a typical, you know, classroom setting. It might be, you know, at night after work or in a church or, you know, a community center. But remember, you've got a childcare issue. Now we've got COVID on top of it. You're maybe working two to three jobs. Are we meeting you where you are? Maybe not. So we think technology can help meet you where you are. So we're getting rolling out these um, tools, if you will. Um, Now we've got a million person campaign we're working on with an app the app developer. Um, and then we're looking at hopefully being able to partner around um, AI because we think that's going to help us as well. It's been wildly successful in K-12 um, and we'd like to try it out with adult learners. And then gaming, we hope to have a, a pilot of a game um, sometime in late fall um, that we're going to pilot again. It's the second round of piloting around gaming. Um, and then even in the future, I see us even looking at VR, virtual reality. We've got to throw the kitchen sink at this problem. And so we're going to be disruptive. And that's that differential between international and domestic is it's kind of like, well, this is the way we've always done it. And we have to do it this way. Well, when there's 130 million people that can't, that essentially read below a sixth grade level, we've got to throw everything we have at it and try it. And if it doesn't work, worst case scenario, we tried it. But when our GDP, when we're losing 10% of GDP every year, and that's conservative, we think it may even be more, it's all hands on deck. So we have to be disruptive. It's not an option. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's interesting. If you can give people access to the technology side, I think that the measurement is much easier as well. And if you can, I think that the trick, right, and is really giving them everything that you're doing, get getting it making it fun, getting it done through gaming or whatever, and really start to get some sort of measurement in place. So it 
it's uh, fascinating on a lot of levels. Uh, it's, it's exciting too. We're, I'm super excited to see, and we don't know which tool is going to work and be successful. We'll get, you know, we'll be the most efficacious or maybe they all will. It's just meeting different people's needs. And so that's a reframing of how we think about teaching, learning, empowering, and supporting folks. And so it really was Barbara Bush's vision. She said, we have to do more. We've been in this fight for 30 years. And I think technology can help us do that. And we need a moonshot. And so for us, um, it, it's our moonshot and we're, we're doubling down on it. I admired Barbara Bush too, because obviously Republican party, but you don't have to be a Republican to recognize that reading is important, right? And I love that you have many people that it's crossed parties and that those are the initiatives that I really love, as you mentioned, I think for a moment, I mean, clean water is, is something that I'm very passionate about. I know a little bit about it, just being in the water business for the last 16 years. But again, I think there are certain initiatives, reading, clean water, that they cross parties. And I, I think that you guys have done an excellent job of bringing everyone in. So um, I really, really love that. So what do you think is, obviously, you've worked in, in health and well-being for your entire career. Are there similarities in that type of nonprofit work versus what you're doing? I think is it... Um, it, you know, can people cross over into other areas? Obviously, you, you know, you're a great example, but I, I think I love that you've followed your passions and things that you're most interested in that you could jump on board uh, with throughout. But just talk to me a little bit about, is there, what was that role before this that seems similar and, and daunting maybe to, to some people, but is, uh, is where you gain strength from because you figured some stuff out. Yeah. You know, just let me comment on your last point is I always say this issue is a purple issue. It's not red or blue. Like for somebody to learn to read or have clean water, it's purple. Who doesn't want somebody to learn to read or have a glass of water? I love it. So it's, you know, take the politics out of it. This is not about any of that. So I always, always start with Totally that. agree. Yeah. So appreciate your, your point on that. You know, I think that I thought when I left uh, being a social worker on the domestic side and went right into international that I probably would have stayed there my whole life. But when the opportunity came up to do the startup around women's heart disease, it had, even though it was domestic, it was sort of this culmination of the experiences that I had, right? So it's the number one killer of women. I had been working in sub-Saharan Africa for almost 15, 20 years. HIV and AIDS was the number one killer, right? Um, it was profoundly impactful on women and children. Same thing domestically. So I, I almost have a side-by-side -side from most of my experiences that I feel that I can apply to this. So I think my previous job in doing the startup um, around women's heart disease really gave me the, I think the, the energy to want to do something hard like this, you know, telling women, particularly low income women, um, women, all women, that heart disease is the number one killer. And that some of it is, if it's not um, hereditary, some of it is 
you know, you're dealing with diabetes, you're dealing with food, you're dealing with diet, but then you're dealing with these issues of poverty. So remember I said, if you can't, if you think about literacy, if you can't read, write, and comprehend, you can't read a ballot. You're food insecure, you're housing insecure. It takes me back to the same issue. So whether you're suffering from diabetes or high blood pressure, or you live in food desert, those same communities typically are suffering their low literate communities. And we actually did a gap map on our website and we, you can pinpoint and tie it to high school graduation levels, poverty levels, poor health outcomes. It's the same population. So the through line, Cara, the, is the same population, those most marginalized, those most in need. So that was the connection for me. So issue, you change the content but you're actually serving the same population, but also the reason you're serving is the same. You're just changing the content. So interesting. What is it like working for a foundation that where the founder is no longer around? I mean, is it like, what is the, I'm, I'm so curious. Hard, right? Because I never, unfortunately, I never got to meet her but I've met all of her children and they are all gift and grace. And, you know, in the South, we say, well, that person was raised right. <laughs> um, there's an expression and they were all raised right. And it is such an, a beautiful witness to their mother, to both of their parents and who they are as people. So that's powerful. But also there's a pressure of making sure that I continue on her legacy, which is pretty awesome which could be daunting, but um, I, I don't let it um, become daunting. And I really view it as, as, as blessing and as a gift. And what an honor it is to be able to carry on her legacy. So there's, totally. there's a sadness sometimes that I never met her, but I feel like through her children and her grandchildren, um, who are wonderful and amazing, um, all of them in their own right and doing, talk about service. This is a family of service and they all give back in so many beautiful and profound ways. Um, and so that gives me a different, although I miss her or having met her, I think I'm able to keep that connection um, through them. There's a sense of feeling, would she want to do this? And would she approve of this? And, you know, I've looked at all the, the archives and read her books and things like that and try to um, make sure that we're infusing kind of her vision, even today, even 30 years later. So it's special. Yeah, it must be really, really special. And being able to have a legacy like this where her, you know, grandchildren and her children can watch this and you are such a perfect person to carry this on. So they are lucky. And uh, I know you feel lucky to be a part of it too, but I think it's uh, it's really, really terrific. So I, I dug up this, this quote from one of your interviews. Mm -hmm. You mentioned leadership is as much about inspiration as it is about management. And what is, what is some of the best advice that you've ever gotten? That's so true. I think people want to be inspired, not just told what to do. Um, so that's, that's one thing. Um, but I think also I was told a long time ago by a couple of mentors that I like to be kind of on a big stage or that I like to take on the hard, complex issues. Um, and once I kind of had peace with that, I kept being drawn towards that. So 
as I was telling you earlier, the moments found me, but I've also worked on really hard things. And the more complicated the problem, the more at peace, the more empowered, the more excited I am about sort of the challenge and fixing the problem. So when a mentor told me that, I was able to switch that on and sort of stay laser focused on knowing, deeply knowing that I'm driven by large challenges. And so that's where I gravitate towards. Yeah, it's it's really, it, I think it is so true and how you continue to inspire others and and really looking at this life for you as a journey where you're going and like I said earlier, service and helping others and and uh, it's it's incredible what what you're doing. And you talked a bit about the X Prize competition, which mm-hmm. is uh, so incredible. When does that start for this year? Is it already underway? So it already started, ended, and now we're actually sort of um, moving through. Yeah, the fruits of the labor. So now we're piloting and we're doing, you know, starting to implement different programs around that. So we're, we're kind of getting through it. I remember I was telling you about the gaming pilot. Um, hopefully we'll see a version of that by the fall. Um, and we're hoping to launch something around um, AI soon in the fall as well. So that's, that's super, super exciting. Yeah. I can't wait to see that. So $110 million at, at, over the last 30 years. Is that right? That's right. Probably a little more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, and support for programs in, in all 50 states and, and the District of Columbia. So incredible, incredible. So really, really exciting. If, if you have not checked out uh, the Barbara Bush Foundation for Family Literacy, definitely uh, have a look because I've been so inspired the more I've done some research on it. And uh, as I mentioned, um, British, I mean, just an incredible leader on so many fronts, just another great person I call my friend and somebody who is just doing awesome stuff that I wanted to share with our community. And how do people... Uh, learn more about you and about the foundation. Yeah, great. Thanks. So please go to our website at www.barbabush.org. And then also to learn more about me, please follow me on um, LinkedIn. Uh, That's where I do all my my good stuff. So I'm on LinkedIn. Just look up British Robinson on, on LinkedIn. So yeah. Thanks. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Please give British five stars and come back and see us every Monday and Wednesday. We actually, I didn't even share this with you, British, but last week we got the number one trending podcast in the U.S. in uh, business and also in education and number 12 in the world. And, you know, this started out of a passion project where I just enjoy speaking to uh, people. As you know, it's this is not my day job. I have a full-time day job, but I've just really enjoyed just having conversations with people that are doing great stuff and makes me think and I think makes me a better leader, human, all of those things, just uh, sharing more with you and, and about you. So, uh, So anyway, very, very excited. Thank you so much. And thank you for allowing me to talk about our work and in my life's journey. It's, it's a, it's a real gift and blessing. Thank you. Appreciate it. It's been great. Everybody have a great rest of the week. Take care. Thanks. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, 
But achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.